Hello and welcome to Rural Powerhouse Week, day three. Join the CLA for the first Rural Powerhouse Week, a four-day programme of free digital events, including live interviews, as well as webinars, panel discussions, and free digital content, including blogs, videos, and podcasts, discussing some of the most pressing issues of our time. The Country Land and Business Association are dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. The Rural Powerhouse is a CLA campaign designed to unleash the potential of the rural economy. It aims to close the rural productivity gap, adding £43 billion per year, while transforming the lives of millions of people who live and work in the countryside. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Rural Powerhouse Week Day 3. Today's podcast will immerse you in the topic of climate change and unpack the concept of net zero. It's an area we know CLA members and indeed all landowners are really interested in and want to know more about. So I'm hoping today we're able to shed a bit more light on this sometimes quite complicated subject. We've got just 30 years left before the global population reaches a projected 9 billion. Finding ways to feed the world without contributing further to the nature crisis and the climate crisis has to be the focal point of the next decade, particularly as we rebuild the economy post-COVID. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, UK Climate Change Committee and international environmental groups have made it really clear we've got just 10 years left to take action and to make sure global warming doesn't go further than 1.5 degrees. For landowners and farmers, the stakes couldn't be higher. Not only are they at the front line of these impacts of climate change, we're talking flood, drought and severe weather events, they also potentially hold the key to solving the climate crisis by harnessing their land to act as a carbon store while simultaneously producing food. To do this, it's going to require a change in thinking and a really strong policy direction from government, which we're going to hear all about today. I'm Alice Ritchie, the Climate Change Lead for the CLA. In this podcast, supported by Strutton Parker, we will hear from the Right Honourable Lord Zach Goldsmith about the government's direction of travel and progress towards net zero goals. Then we'll hear from Jason Vidal from Strutton Parker to discuss what this all actually means for landowners and farmers on the ground. I am delighted to welcome our first guest, the Right Honourable Lord Zach Goldsmith of Richmond Park. Lord Goldsmith is the Minister of State for the Pacific and the Environment, with responsibilities including international environment, climate change, biodiversity, COP26 and forestry. Lord Goldsmith has always been passionate about environmental issues and had an impressive track record even before he entered Parliament, including as the editor of The Ecologist magazine and winning the Mikhail Gorbachev Global Green Award for International Environmental Leadership. Lord Goldsmith, thank you so much for joining me today. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and about your ministerial responsibilities? Yeah, thanks for having me. So my name is Zach Goldsmith. I'm a member of the House of Lords and I'm a minister across two departments, DEFRA and the Foreign 
or the new FCDO, the Foreign Common Development Office. And it's the first time that job has been combined, but it makes perfect sense in this year of climate and environment action, where a lot of the domestic stuff we're doing is driven by DEFRA, particularly on nature. And obviously, the FCDO has a massive diplomatic task ahead to make sure COP is a success. Yes. So speaking of COP, I thought I'd start by asking you a little bit about government progress to date, how we're tracking. Uh, We know that the Committee on Climate Change is due to publish the next carbon budget in December this year. So at the moment, we're not on track, it looks like, to meet the fourth and fifth carbon budgets. And so we're probably going to need some big changes to meet the sixth. So what's the government got in the works? What are we planning on doing to really ramp up our efforts to meet the net zero target in the carbon budgets? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are two there are two layers to this. The first is what are we doing domestically to hit net zero? And you're right. So we overachieved on the first and second carbon budgets. It looks like we're very much on track to meet the third budget, uh, which ends in 2022. But we're definitely going to need to ramp things up a lot to meet the fourth and the fifth budget. And as you say, the Climate Change Committee is going to be coming forward its recommendation for the sixth budget at the end of this year. And we have to then set that in law by mid next year. So there's no doubt that we've got a huge amount of heavy lifting to do to meet net zero. But I think, you know, we've shown historically that you can cut emissions and grow the economy at the same time. We reduced our emissions by over 40% since 1990. And during that time or since then, the economy has grown by three quarters. So we've kind of shown that that link between the two is not inevitable. uh, And I think that's important. But every department of government is going to have to figure out how to do its bit. Um, you know, we're going to be cutting emissions pretty pretty dramatically across the whole economy. You know, we've got an energy white paper, we've got a transport decarbonisation plan, we've got a heat and building strategy, we've got all, all these things coming forward. And then in DEFRA, we, we are looking at how we can both mitigate, but also how can we absorb carbon? And the, our tree targets are a big part of that. But you know, every department's got an enormous amount of work to do. The only thing I'd say is that no, no one's under any illusion about how difficult it is. But there is a a really unprecedented level of commitment and even enthusiasm from each of the departments. Um, So I don't get the sense that there's any real foot dragging. There's a recognition that this has got to happen. So in in transport, you've got Grant Shapps is is, um, going to be producing the decarbonization strategy, setting the challenge, I think is what it's going to be called. And it's, it's not just the usual transition to zero emissions vehicles, although obviously that's a big part of it. But it's it's going to be looking at how we travel, how goods and services reach us on a day-to-day basis. It's going to be taking a pretty fundamental approach. And then you've got the Jet Zero Council, which is about aviation, probably one of the toughest nuts to crack. So it's it's difficult, but there is no doubt in my mind that the government's got the right approach and is committed. And the last thing I'd say on that, if, if I can, is that we are, you know, we've got a pretty good record. The Climate Change Act in, in 12 years ago, 2008, was the first of its kind in the world, kind of le- legally obliging us to cut emissions. Last year, we had the legal commitment to net zero by 2050, the first industrial country in the world to do so. In the last few weeks, we've seen the EU, China, and Japan, and South Korea all coming from with net zero commitments by 2050 or in China's case 2060 on the back of huge diplomatic efforts by the Foreign Office and the COP unit. You know, we've changed the debate around climate internationally by putting the focus on nature and nature-based solutions. Every country is coming forward with plans that are in one way or another demonstrating an understanding of the link between nature and climate. And then in a few weeks' time, December the 12th, we will have a 
moment, a, a, a summit, climate ambition summit, where we're hoping and expecting countries will come forward with clear commitments that they're taking this stuff seriously and a clear sign that we're going to be getting to where we need to get to when we host COP at the end of next year. So there's a huge amount happening and no one's doing enough, no government in the world, but we are, I think, increasingly getting into the right place on this. Yeah, I do. I definitely think that the UK possibly from inside the country underestimates how much of a global influence that, uh, yeah, a global influence that UK climate policies actually have. But it's interesting to hear you talk about nature-based solutions and tree planting being such a big focus, given that for CLA members who own or manage um, a significant amount of the rural land across England and Wales, that's sort of the unique advantage that, that our members have is that they can really tackle climate change by harnessing nature and yeah. improving the amount of carbon that is stored in trees and soils. Um, and so I wanted to ask... The climate crisis is obviously inextricably linked to the nature crisis. And so the funds that we've seen being announced, like the Nature for Climate Fund and the Nature Recovery Fund, are going to be absolutely critical to mm. start seeing some of these projects come to life. How do you think that they're going to be used? What kind of projects do you think they should be used for? Uh, what kind of goals do you think they should be aiming to achieve? I think it's you're exactly right to make that link between nature and climate. And that that is what we're trying to do in all of our you know, in everything we say and do in relation to COP. And, you know, it, it, we think that about a third of the cost-effective solutions to climate change are going to be found in nature-based solutions. We don't think, we know that there is no pathway to net zero here or internationally without a massive increase in our efforts to protect and restore nature. And yet, despite all of that, nature gets hardly any attention when it comes to climate change. So only 3%, in fact, less than 3% of global climate finance is invested in nature, which is mad, makes no sense at all. So we're trying to shift that. And, and when the government, when the prime minister announced that we were doubling our international climate finance, he also said that a big chunk of the uplift would be invested in nature-based solutions. So, and, and around the world, that means different things. It, you know, Forests are the most obvious example. You plant trees, you absorb carbon. Uh, uh, but mangroves, also mangrove forests, absolutely crucial. Seagrass, there are lots of different ways in which we can do this. And the beauty of nature-based solutions, and this applies just as much in the UK as it does overseas, is you're not just tackling climate change, you're not just absorbing carbon or protecting carbon sinks, you're contributing to reversing biodiversity loss. 80% of the world's terrestrial biodiversity lives in forests. Biodiversity is plummeting, as we all know, at a, a really record and a terrifying, appalling rate. So in protecting forests and planting new forests and managing ecosystems better is going to be good for that. There's also a poverty link. A billion people depend on forests for their livelihoods. Um, so you cut down all the forests, you destroy those free services that nature provides. It's the people who depend most on them who tend to be the poorest people who are going to be hit hardest. Uh, so you're dealing with so many different issues in a stroke. And that's why you know it shouldn't be 3% of our effort. It should be a huge, huge increase on that. We, we really need to focus heavily on nature-based solutions. Here in the UK, we are, we are, as you know, we're about to produce an England tree strategy, obviously not for the whole of the UK, but for England, although we're working very closely with the devolved areas. And I'm completely determined as the minister responsible to make sure that when we invest in trees, that we don't just see them as sticks of carbon, that, that we develop that program in a way that answers all those other questions as well, biodiversity, 
and also human interest. We know, if nothing else, from COVID that there's a sort of innate craving for nature that people have, and they sort of recognise that perhaps more than ever when they're stuck behind doors in the lockdown circumstances. And then you've also got other issues, sort of the, the amount of money we spend. Uh, clearing up after floods in this country, and the amount of money we spend investing in preventing floods. It's very much our view that uh, we need to increasingly look to nature to help us provide solutions there as well. And, and the last thing I wanted to say on this in terms of how we deliver, it, I think the biggest single thing that's happening for nature here in the UK is a shift away from the old common agriculture policy, which effectively paid people, landowners, for converting their land so that it could be farmed. And that often meant grabbing out valuable ecosystems. And I think the common agriculture policy is responsible for more biodiversity loss than anything else I can think of here in this country. So switching from that to a system where the money is conditional upon good stewardship of the land is going to be profound, really, really big news for nature. And I think that shift will be felt very, very acutely by all of your members in the CLA. And this will have a direct impact, a very good impact, I think, but it'll have a direct impact on all of them one way or another. Yes, I think a lot of what you were saying there will will resonate a lot with our membership, thinking about trees and nature-based solutions to improve soil health and prevent flooding and trying to get all of those co-benefits and kind of wrap them all up in the one in the one piece of land and the one solution. Are there ways that we can use these these climate fund, the Nature for Climate Fund and the Nature Recovery Fund and the the money through the Environmental Land Management Scheme and use it somehow as a springboard to stimulate private funding for these kind of solutions? Yeah, we, we do. That, that's a real challenge and it's not easy, but it has to be done. We, there's, even if every donor country did what we're doing in terms of our own ODA spend, our overseas development assistance, we, we, um, there's not enough public money to solve the problem. So we need to mobilize private finance. And that's also obviously true here as well. It's difficult and it hasn't been done at scale yet really anywhere. But there are things we can do. So one of the ways in which the private sector will be bound in on this endeavor to to reverse biodiversity loss and tackle climate change here in the UK will be as a consequence of the Environment Bill, where we're mandating for biodiversity net gain and effectively means that all new developments have to yield at least a 10% increase in biodiversity. And you'll see businesses responding in lots of different ways to that. So far, the reaction has been very positive. It's a big move. I think, again, it's a world first. I don't think anyone else has tried this. But it, could, it will, I think, have a huge impact in terms of reconciling uh, developers and businesses with this incredibly important undertaking that, that, that we have in relation to biodiversity. There are other ways as well. We know that there are, you know, there are water companies in, in, across the country, but particularly in the West Country, who pay landowners to manage land in a way that reduces the need for flood defences downstream or, or in such a way that reduces the need for cleaning out pesticides from water downstream. So that, that sort of natural capital market is beginning to emerge in any case, but we've got to find ways to expand it. Um, and it's a, it's a big challenge. I think internationally, one of the ways in which this is going to happen is through carbon markets. You, there's been you know masses of obstacles in the way of any kind of resolution of Article Six of the COP, of the Climate COP, which is all about international carbon markets. But I'm convinced we can break through that. And as long as you have proper quality control in terms of the projects that are supported through carbon markets, and quality control on the companies and countries that are engaging in carbon markets, I think we can deal with most of the concerns that people have. And I think if we do, you'll see it immediately there, the transfer 
transfer of really huge sums of money from the private sector to protecting nature, to investing in nature. And so we really have to achieve that. It's probably the most complicated part of the climate agenda internationally, but it's also probably the most important, or at least one of the most important. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. And I think our membership would definitely be on the same page about that too. Because so many of our members have significant natural capital assets or own grassland, forestry and woodland, moorland, peatland, salt marshes, you name it. What do you think your message would be to CLA members who manage this kind of land and want to ensure that their, their natural capital is conserved and they're able to take advantage of these nature-based solutions and help contribute to tackling the climate crisis? What would your message to them be to help them conserve it for generations to come? I mean, look, in real terms, the government's job is mostly about setting the rules, creating the incentives and the stimuli, you know, creating the market signals, creating the legal framework. That, that's what the government's supposed to do. But it's going to be your members, and, and not just your members, but your members are going to be at the heart of delivering and responding to those signals sent by government. So we're not going to be able to do any of the things that we want to do, whether it's tree planting or reversing biodiversity loss or creating nature recovery networks and, uh, or, or any of these things without your members being really deeply involved. So my, my message, I suppose, is you know, let us know. Let me know as a minister. Lobby me to let me know how, what more the government should be doing to make it really an inevitable consequence of owning land. We want landowners to just naturally engage completely with this program, whether it's a tree strategy or more. And if there are obstacles in the way, obstacles perhaps the government has the power to knock to one side, or if there are incentives that you think we need to improve or fine tune, we need to get it right. So it's going to be that kind of feedback, which is going to help us to make sure that we send the right signals and that we're working in a genuine partnership with your members. Because you know, there's, you know, we have to be have a bit of humility about this. The government cannot solve these problems. There's absolutely no way we can do a big part we can play a big role, but it's only going to be in partnership with people like your members that's going to yield any kind of meaningful results. Thank you so much, Lord Goldsmith. That's been fascinating to hear to hear from you and to hear about how, how nature-based solutions um, can help us tackle the climate crisis. I think a lot of that will really resonate with our membership and we will we'll take you up on that. We'll continue to lobby you and make sure that we uh, yeah try to come up with these collaborative approaches across yeah, across our membership and with government. So thank you so much. Real, thank you very much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
The Rural Powerhouse is a CLA campaign focused on unleashing the potential of the rural economy. Its aims are a fully connected countryside, a planning system designed for rural communities, profitable and sustainable farming, investment in skills and innovation, and a simpler tax regime. As we've heard from Lord Goldsmith, there is a really strong case here for natural climate solutions, and landowners have a big role to play in tackling the climate and nature crises. Now, here to tell us how they can actually get going with it is Jason Bedell, Director of Research at Strutton Parker. Jason joined Strutton Parker in February 2016, bringing with him 20 years of property experience. Jason's previously led projects for the Scottish Government, Highways England, and the Countryside Agency and now provides information and analysis to institutional and private sector clients. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm a chartered surveyor, chartered environmentalist. My heart is environmental. I did a PhD at Reading a long time ago on farmers' attitudes to conservation, and it's great to see it coming further up the agenda. Yeah, well, we've just heard all about the government's direction of travel from Lord Goldsmith, and he's talked about the international influence that the UK is showing, all the progress to date on climate change, um, or lack of progress to date on climate change, and he was really focused on nature-based solutions. So this does all sound like quite high-level and big-picture stuff, and he was very focused on the global landscape and things like that. For your sort of standard farmers or land managers in the UK, what does all this actually mean? How can we get involved in nature-based solutions to climate change on a farm level? Yeah, I get that. I think it can be really hard for an individual to think that they can make a difference and get involved, but of course they can. And uh, I think it's the small differences we can make as individuals that add up into a massive difference nationally and also set an example internationally, which is what the government is trying to do. And I think it's also really challenging, isn't it, when policy is changing so fast, things like basic payments being phased out uh, and a new scheme, ELMS, being phased in. For the individual farmer, I think there are probably three or so things that they can do. Number one, I think, and it's the probably the most important, whatever you do, you need to enjoy it and believe in it. You can have the most sophisticated plan for farming or for the environment, but if you really don't think it's going to work uh, or you don't want to do it, then there's very little chance of it working, is there? I think the the second thing is, because we are still going to need to produce food, crops, livestock. uh, So whatever you produce, do it efficiently. Uh, And by that, I mean aiming for top 25% performance. And that's whether you're in the most productive arable areas or, or you're up in the uplands. And key to that from our experience is only producing where it's profitable to do so. And most farms have got areas they farm which are unprofitable. So you can increase profits that way. I suppose an example of that, uh, thinking about where I live in in South Lincolnshire, is you know we, we know that yields are 10 to 25% lower on the headlands. So it's very hard to make a profit on them. And managing fixed costs is also key as well. They're much more variable than variable costs, ironically. And then the final thing I would say that individual farmers can do is just to make sure they're as good at environmental management as they are at crop or livestock management. And they're really simple ways of doing that by setting some simple targets. You know, 
identifying the most valuable areas of the farm for biodiversity and making sure they're managed so they're in good condition. And that can be as simple as a map, just showing the areas and the species you want to see on them in a year's time and, and perhaps in five years' time. And linked to that, identifying on the map a network of habitats so you've created a functional environmental network. You can also link that if you if you want to what I said earlier, you know, profits. I think you'd very quickly see that taking unprofitable areas out of production increases your profits and it does something positive for the environment. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing a wee bit with the environmental land management scheme and things. It's viewing farmers and land managers yeah, more so as environmental deliverers, not just food producers, if that makes sense. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that all plays out. You touched on land use a little bit there and talking about profitable and unprofitable land. We know that reaching net zero is going to be a huge challenge and we're all going to have to kind of pull together to achieve it. What do you think the implications are going to be for land use? How do you sort of see the UK looking in 2050 if we're trying to meet our climate change targets? Well, that's a brilliant question. And I, I personally find it much easier to do something if I can visualise it. I don't think it's going to be business as usual. And if you listen to the Committee on Climate Change, they don't think it is either. There are going to be some pretty fundamental changes to the way land's used and managed. But that's probably only going to affect, say, 20, 25% of the land. Uh, and the, the answer is going to look different in different parts of the country. So in general, I think we're going to see round about 25% of the land shifting to alternative uses that supports emissions reductions. So things like, and we know most of these already, don't we? More tree planting, producing energy crops, uh, restoring peatland. Uh, I think those would be the three big changes. Do you think that there's some merit in keeping some of our grassland in, you know, as permanent pasture and things like that, given it's such a good and reliable store of carbon? Or do you see trees as being more of an answer to the carbon storage question? I suppose it depends what your target is. If you're just thinking about carbon, then you'd probably favour trees, wouldn't you, over grass? But if you're thinking more broadly about biodiversity, and we've got a biodiversity emergency at the moment, and you're thinking about natural capital, then you're definitely going to need some some more grassland. And sheep, cattle are, are brilliant managers of the, the countryside. So I think, you know, a bit like land use becoming more multifunctional, I think we'll probably start looking at livestock as being more multifunctional, you know, not just food, but eaters, managers of grass in good condition. Can we help find ways to help farmers get involved in things like agroforestry and even just, I know the Committee on Climate Change has a target to double the amount of trees on farms. And in that definition, yeah. they include absolutely everything, you know, hedgerows and riparian shelter belts and all that kind of thing. Do you think that there's opportunities in the UK to get get farmers and land managers involved in those kind of plantings that are yeah at that smaller scale and hopefully allow us to still use land um, to produce crops and livestock? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think you got it right. It's, it will be planting along things like roads and rivers for specific purposes. So to help trap particulates from roads to improve air quality, to stop soil running into watercourses to try and improve water quality. And I think farmers will understand that much more than potentially planting big blocks just to store carbon. I think that's much more in, within their psyche. Agroforestry, I think, is fascinating. I, I'd really love to see more of it, but it's it, it's 
not very widely practiced at the moment. And I think the biggest challenge for anyone who wants to try and encourage more is is probably, you know, the, the six inches between our ears, changing mindsets rather than anything else. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I wonder if that's a job for the, the CLA and Strutton Parker to get involved with and start doing a bit of knowledge exchange and, and helping, you know, the people that we work with who work on the ground, helping them yeah, get involved in those kind of things. Yeah, definitely. I think I think we should. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of what you've said matches up really interestingly with what Lord Goldsmith was saying earlier. He he really sees there's a huge amount of potential in things like, yeah, all these nature-based solutions or using plots of trees to um, you know alleviate flood, improve biodiversity, and tackle the climate crisis, all at the same time. So it'll be interesting to see how future agriculture policy can help incentivize these types of slightly smaller scale land use changes. Yeah, it will be. I mean, for, for me, Alice, I think one of the challenges, though, is articulating precisely what is needed in different areas. You know, the Committee on Climate Change and the government are quite good at setting out broad policies nationally. But I haven't seen what we need done at a regional level, let alone, say, a county level or a district level. And And farmers are great working together. You know, we've seen some of the real benefits of the facilitation groups, when they get together, they tend to encourage each other. And the evidence that's emerging is that the outcomes for the environment are even better. So what I, w- I would love to see is some of the broad policies and the really interesting good documents that have been written, you know, particularly by the Natural Capital Committee, Committee on Climate Change. Uh, and we're starting to see some of that flow down into what the government's producing. But we need that boiled down into what we can do at local level and how much we need to do so that it has a the desired environmental benefit that we need. And of course, we probably haven't talked about it enough. It's got to be profitable. Otherwise, people are much more or going to be much less willing to do it. And of course, they might not be able to afford to do it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That makes a huge amount of sense. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the Natural Capital Committee too, because we've had uh, Professor Dieter Helm speaking at our climate change uh, day as part of the Rural Powerhouse Week. So, yeah, I think the links between natural capital and climate change are fascinating. So, Jason, what is carbon accounting and should farmers start thinking about undertaking one? Yeah, I think they should. It it sounds a bit scary, but it's just like financial accounting, which we all have to do already. But instead of income and expenditure in pounds, a carbon account looks at tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent stored and emitted from the business's activities. So for for me, its value is that it shows you whether your activities are overall storing or emitting, which you can identify by activity, and it gives you the information to make changes to reduce emissions if that's what you want to do. So my, my personal view is that you need this kind of account if you want to sell carbon or things like biodiversity credits from your land. Putting myself in the position of a buyer, I wouldn't buy your credits from one part of your land if I didn't know that what you were doing on other parts was the right thing or environmentally positive. But I think carbon accounting only tells you part of the story. They're part of a natural capital account, an important part, but that natural capital account gives you a much fuller story that includes the value of food production, carbon, air quality, health, recreation, and although it's hard to put into pounds, biodiversity value as well. So what's the first step? Where can farmers or land managers go to get started on this kind of thing? Is there a tool that you'd recommend? 
there is a tool that we recommend and our farming team is already producing these kind of accounts. We're generally using AgriCalc, which was developed for Scotland, but you can use it in England. Uh, and we've also, we're comparing it with the farm carbon calculator as well. So at the moment we're, we're testing two and we'll decide which one we think is more useful and reliable. We've heard from you, Jason, about what land use might look like in 2050 and how farmers and land managers can get started at looking, looking at natural capital, looking at carbon accounting. And it's been, it's been really, really interesting. What do you think some of the immediate things that land managers can get started on right away are? For the environment, one of the most valuable habitats on any farm is woodland. So first thing is making sure that your existing woodland is well managed, not unmanaged. And the same applies for peatland too. I would also recommend that you try and create a network of habitats across the land and ensure that they're well linked up. So you've got functioning environmental networks. In terms of your pocket and profits, it's undoubtedly farming as efficiently as possible. So be in the top 25% if you can, as long as the environmental impacts aren't significant. And finally, it's preparing for elms and trying to quantify the number of carbon credits you could produce if that's what you want to do. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Thank you to both Lord Goldsmith and Jason Bedell. It's been fascinating to hear about how landowners and farmers can harness nature-based solutions to tackle the climate crisis and how important that role is. I think that is something that will resonate really well with our membership and possibly act as a bit of a call to action. In particular, it's been so interesting to hear how well this work aligns with the government's direction of travel and good to know that we can call on the expertise of people like Jason when it comes to things like natural capital and carbon. Thank you for listening and we hope you found it both informative and useful. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we are releasing a new episode each day for Rural Powerhouse Week. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you, and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the CLA Rural Powerhouse Week podcast. The CLA's new weekly podcast, Rural Business Uncovered, will be released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search CLA on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.